Chapter Three of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Three. Carl Erickson, grown to sixteen and long trousers, trimmed the arc lights for Jor Lemon Power and Lighting Company after school. Then at Eddie Clem's billiard parlor, he won two games of Kelly Pool, smoked a cigarette of flake tobacco and wheat straw paper, and chipped in five cents towards a can of beer. A slender Carl, hesitating in speech, but with plenty to say, rangy as a setter pup, silken-haired, his Scandinavian cheeks like petals at an age when his companions' faces were like maps of the moon, stubborn and healthy, wearing a celluloid collar and a plain black foreign hand, a blue-eyed, undistinguished, awkward, busy proletarian of sixteen, to whom evening clothes and poetry did not exist, but who quivered with inarticulate determinations to see Minneapolis or even Chicago. To him it was sheer romance to parade through town with a tin haversack of carbons for the arc lights, familiarly lowering the high-hung mysterious lamps, while his plodding acquaintances clerked in stores on Saturdays or tended furnaces. Sometimes he donned the virile and noisy uniform of an electrician. Army gauntlets, a coil of wire, pole climbers strapped to his legs, crunching his steel spurs into the crisp pine wood of the lighting poles, he carelessly ascended to the place of humming wires and red crossbars and green glass insulators, while crowds of two and three small boys stared in awe from below. At such moments, Carl did not envy the aristocratic leisure of his high school classmate, Fatty Ben Rusk, who, as son of the leading doctor, did not work, but stayed home and read library books. Carl's own home was not adapted to the enchantments of a boy's reading. Perfectly comfortable it was, and clean with the hard cleanliness that keeps oilcloth looking perpetually unused, but it was so airlessly respectable that it doubled Carl's natural restlessness. It had been old Oscar Erickson's labor of love, but the carpenter loved shininess more than space and leisure. His model for a house would have been a pine dry-goods box, grained in imitation of oak. Oscar Erickson radiated intolerance and a belief in unimaginative, unresting labor. Every evening, collarless and carpet-slippered, ruffling his broom-colored hair or stroking his large, long chin, while his shirt-tab moved ceaselessly in time to his breathing, he read a Norwegian paper. Carl's mother darned woolen socks and thought about milk-pans and the neighbors and breakfast. The creak of rockers filled the unventilated oilcloth floor sitting-room. The sound was as unchanging as the sacred positions of the crayon enlargement of Mrs. Erickson's father, the green-glass top-hat for matches, or the violent ingrain rug with its dog-head pattern. Carl's own room contained only plaster walls, a narrow wooden bed, a bureau, a kitchen chair. Fifteen minutes in this irreproachable home sent Carl off to Eddie Clem's billiard parlor, which was not irreproachable. He rather disliked the bitterness of beer and the acrid specks of cigarette tobacco that stuck to his lips, but the bunch at Eddie's were among the few people in Jerusalem who were conscious of life. Eddie's establishment was a long, white-plastered room with a pressed steel ceiling and an upswept floor. 
On the walls were billiard table markers, calendars, and a collection of cigarette premium chromos portraying bathing girls. The girls were of lithographic complexions, almost too perfect of feature, and their lips were more than ruby. Carl admired them. A September afternoon. The sixteen-year-old Carl was tipped back in a chair at Eddie Clem's, one foot on a rung, while he discussed village scandals and told outrageous stories with Eddie Clem, a brisk money-maker and a vulgarian aged twenty-three, who wore a fancy vest and celluloid buttons on his lapels. Ben Rusk hesitatingly poked his head through the door. Eddie Clem called with business-like cordiality. "'Hello, fatty. Come in.' How's your good health? Haven't reformed, have you? Going to join us, roughnecks? Come on, I'll teach you to play pool. Won't cost you a cent. Nah, I guess I hadn't better. I was just looking for Carl. Well, well, fatty, ain't we refined? Why do we guess we ain't to probably, maybe oughtn't to had better? Oh, I don't know. Some day I'll learn, I guess sighed fatty ben rusk who knew perfectly that with a doctor father a religious mother and an effeminate taste for reading he could never be a town sport hey watch out shrieked eddie what's the matter gasped fatty floor it's falling on you the 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 i say you're kidding me said fatty weakly with a propitiating smile don't worry, son. You're the third guy today that I've caught on that. Stick around, son, and sit in any time, and I'll learn you some pool. You got just the right build for a champ player. Have a cigarette. The social amenities whereby Jerolium prepares her youth for the graces of life having been recognized, Fatty Rusk hitched a chair beside Carl and muttered, Hey, Carl, here's what I wanted to tell you. I was just up at the Cowles's to take back a French grammar I borrowed to look at. Maybe that ain't a hard-looking language. What do you think? Mrs. Cowles told me Gertie is expected back tomorrow. Gee whiz! I thought she was going to stay in New York for two years, and she's only been gone six months. Yes, Mrs. Cowles is kind of lonely without her, Ben mooned. So now you'll be all nice and in love with Gertie again, eh? certainly gets me why you want to fall in love, Fatty, when you could be out hunting. If you'd read about King Arthur and Galahad and all them instead of reading the Scientific American and about those fool horseless carriages and stuff, there never will be any practical use for horseless carriages anyway. There will, growled Carl. My mother says she don't believe the Lord ever intended us to ride without horses, or what did he give us horses for? and the things always get stuck in the mud, and you have to walk home. Mother was reading that in the newspaper just the other day. Son, let me tell you, I'll own a horseless carriage some day, and I bet I go an average of twenty miles an hour with it, maybe forty. All oh, rats! But I was saying, if you'd read some library books, you'd know about love. Why, what did God put love in the world for? Say, would you quit explaining to me what God did things for? Ouch! Quit off! Quit, Carl! Say, listen, here's what I wanted to tell you. How if you and me and Adeline Benner and some of us went down to the depot to meet Gertie tomorrow? 
She comes in on a 1247. Well, all right. Say, Benny, you don't want to be worried when I kid you about being in love with Gertie. I don't think I'll ever get married, but it's all right for you. Saturday morning was cool, so radiant that Carl awakened early, to a conviction that no matter how important meeting Gertie might be in the cosmic scheme, he was going hunting. He was downstairs by five, fried two eggs, called Dollar Ingersoll, his dog, son of Robert Ingersoll Stillman, gentleman dog, then in canvas hunting coat and slouch hat, tramped out of town southward, where the woods ended in prairie. Gertie's arrival was forgotten. It was a gypsy day. The sun rolled splendidly through the dry air over miles of wheat stubble, whose gray-yellow prickles were transmuted by distance into tawny velvet, seeming only the more spacious because of the straight, thin lines of barbed wire fences lined with goldenrod, and solitary houses in willow groves. The dips and curves of the rolling plain drew him on. The distances satisfied his eyes. A pleasant hum of insects filled the land's wide serenity with hidden life. Carl left a trail of happy, monotonous whistling behind him all day, as his dog followed the winding trail of prairie chickens, as a covey of chickens rose with booming wings, and he swung his shotgun for a bead. He stopped by prairie sloughs or bright green bogs to watch for a duck. He hailed as equals the occasional groups of hunters in two-seated buggies, quartering the fields after circling dogs. He lunched contentedly on sandwiches of cold lamb, and lay with his arms under his head, gazing at a steeple fully ten miles away. By six of the afternoon he had seven prairie chickens tucked inside the long pocket that lined the tail of his coat, and he headed for home, superior to miles, his quiet eyes missing none of the purple asters and goldenrod. As he began to think, he felt a bit guilty. Flowers suggested Gertie. He gathered a large bunch, poking stalks of aster among the goldenrod, examining the result at arm's length. Yet when he stopped at Rusk's in town to bid Benny to take the rustic bouquet to Gertie, he replied to reproaches. What you making all the fuss about my not being there to meet her for? She got here all right, didn't she? What'd you expect me to do? Kiss her? You ought to known it was too good a day for hunting to miss. How's Gert? Have a good time in New York? Carl himself took the flowers to her, however, and was so shyly attentive to her account of New York that he scarcely stopped to speak to the Cowles's hired girl, who was his second cousin. Mrs. Cowles overheard him shout, Hello, Lena. How's it going? to the hired girl with cousinly ease. Mrs. Cowles seemed chilly. Carl wondered why. From month to month of his junior year in high school, Carl grew more discontented. He let the lines of his Cicero fade into a gray blur that confounded Cicero's blatant virtue and Catalan's treachery, while he pictured himself tramping with snowshoes and a Mackinac coat into the snowy solemnities of the northern Minnesota tamarack swamps. Much of his discontent was caused by his learned preceptors. The teachers for this year were almost perfectly calculated to make any lad of the slightest independence hate culture for the rest of his life. With the earnestness and industry usually ascribed to the devil, Professor Sybent E. Larson, B.A., Platonius, Miss MacDonald, and Miss Muzzy kept up 95% discipline and 7%
instruction on anything in the least worth while. Miss Muzzy was sarcastic and proud of it. She was sarcastic to Carl when he gruffly asked why he couldn't study French instead of all this Latin stuff. If there be any virtue in the study of Latin, and we have all forgotten all our Latin except the fact that suburb means under the city, i.e. a subway. Carl was blinded to it forever. Miss Muzzy wore eyeglasses and had no bosom. Carl's father used to say approvingly, "'That Miss Muzzy don't stand for no nonsense!' And Mrs. Dr. Rusk often had her for dinner. Miss MacDonald, fat and slow-spoken and kind, prone to use the word deary, to read Longfellow, and to have buttons off her shirtwaists, used on Carl a feminine weapon more unfair than the robust sarcasm of Miss Muzzy. After irritating a self-respecting boy into rudeness by pawing his soul with damp, puffy hands, she would weep. She was a kind, honest, and reverent bovine. Carl sat under her supervision in the junior room, with its hardwood and blackboards and plaster, high windows and portraits of Washington, and a president who was either Madison or Monroe, nobody ever remembered which. He hated the eternal school smell of drinking water pails and chalk and slates and varnish. He loathed the blackboard erasers, white with crayon dust. He found inspiration only in the laboratory, where Prof. Larson mistaught physics and rebuked questions about the useless part of chemistry. That is the part that wasn't in their textbooks. As for literature, Ben Rusk persuaded him to try Captain Marriott and Conan Doyle. Carl met Sherlock Holmes in a paper-bound book during a wait for flocks of mallards on a duck pass, which was a little temple of silver birches, bare with November. He crouched down in his canvas coat and rubber boats, gun across knees, and read for an hour without moving. As he tramped home into a vast Minnesota sunset like a furnace of fantastic coals, past the garnet-tinged ice of lakes, he kept his gun cocked and under his elbow, ready for the royal robber who was dogging the personage of Baker Street. He hunted much, distinguished himself in geometry and chemistry, nearly flunked in Cicero and English, learned to play an extraordinary steady game of bottle pool at Eddie Climbs. And always Gertie Cowles, gently hesitant toward Ben Rusk's affection, kept asking Carl why he didn't come see her oftener and play tiddlywinks. On the Friday morning, before Christmas vacation, Carl and Ben Rusk were cleaning up the chemical laboratory, its pine experiment bench and iron sink and rough floor. Benny worried a rag in the sink with the resigned manner of a man who, having sailed with purple banners the sunset sea of tragedy, goes bravely on with a life gray and weary. The town was excited. Gertie Cowles was giving a party and she had withdrawn her invitation to Eddie Clem. Gertie was staying away from high school, gracefully recovering from a cold. For two weeks the junior and senior classes had been furtively exhibiting her holly-deck cards of invitation. Eddie had been included, but after his quarrel with Howard Griffin, a Plato College freshman, who was spending the vacation with Ray Cowles, it had been explained to Eddie that perhaps he would be more comfortable not to come to the party. Gertie's brother Murray, or Ray, was the town hero. He had captained the high school football team. 
He was tall and very black-haired, and he jollied the girls. It was said that twenty girls in Jerusalem and Walkman and a grass widow in St. Hilary wrote to him. He was now a freshman in Plato College, Plato, Minnesota, and he brought home with him his classmate Howard Griffin, whose people lived in South Dakota and were said to be wealthy. Griffin had been very haughty to Eddie Clem when introduced to that brisk young man at the billiard parlor, and now the town eagerly learned Eddie had been rejected of society. In the laboratory, Carl was growling, Well, say, Fatty, if it was right for them to throw Eddie out, where do I come in? His dad's a barber and mine's a carpenter, and that's just as bad. Or how about you? I was reading that docs used to be just barbers. Ah, thunder, said Ben Rusk, the doctor's scion, uncomfortably. You're just arguing. I don't believe that about doctors being barbers. Don't it tell about doctors way back in the Bible? Why, of course. Luke was a physician. Besides, it ain't a question of Eddie being a barber's son. I should think you'd realize that Gertie isn't well. She wouldn't want to have to entertain both Eddie and Griffin, and Griffin's her guest. And besides, you're getting all tangled up. If I was to let you go on, you'd trip over a long word and bust your dome. Come on. We've done enough cleaning. Let's hike. Come on up to the house and help me on my bobs. I got a new scheme for pivoting the back sled. You just wait till tonight. I'm going to tell Gertie and Mr. Howard Griffin. Just want to think of them for being such two-bit snobs. And your future ma-in-law. Gee. I'm glad I don't have to be in love with anybody and become a snob. Come on. Out of this wholesome, democratic, and stuffy village life, Carl suddenly stepped into the great world. A motor car, the first he had ever seen, was drawn up before the Hennepin house. He stopped. His china-blue eyes widened. His shoulders shot forward to a rigid stoop of astonishment. His mouth opened. He gasped as they ran to join the gathering crowd. A horseless carriage! Do you get that? There's one here. He touched the bonnet of the two-cylinder 1901 car and worshipped. Under there the engine. And there's where you steer. I will own one. Gee, you're right, Fatty. I believe I will go to college, and then I'll study mechanical engineering. Thought you said you was going to try to go to Annapolis and be a sailor. Nah, rats. I'm going to own a horseless carriage, and I'm going to tour every state in the Union. Think of seeing mountains and the ocean and going twenty miles an hour like a train. End of chapter three.